Ladies and gentlemen, you are about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this theater. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next 90 seconds. Today, we're talking about splatter films. Blood and guts and arms and legs and mutilation and dismemberment and scalpings and beheadings. But today, I also want to talk about the splatter industry, where and how it started, the controversy behind it, and how it got its second and third wind long after the drive-ins and grindhouses were closed. Today's episode is not for the faint-hearted, but if you love a good psycho serial killer, a zombie massacre, or a simple club where rich people pay to kill Americans in an abandoned Slovakian warehouse, buckle up for today's episode on Splatter. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from murderous gays to evil sandas to horny nuns. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hi, Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. We're in Brooklyn. We are. This is a change for yeah, us. We finally made this work. I feel like every time you came up to New York to record, something disastrous would happen. Right, yeah. And so something probably disastrous will happen today. Are you it. ready? Yeah I'm, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Good. Well, we've transformed my little one-bedroom apartment into our studio. I yeah, think it's did. working. I think it's working. It's working until, you know, when we hear cops go by or something. Something will happen, I'm sure. We're so. just going to leave that in. That's just, that's the Brooklyn charm. It's part of the ambiance that, yeah. of this episode. Yeah. So I'm trying to kind of come full circle today because, of okay. course, you know, my first episode was on cannibalism. I talked a little bit about Blood Feast and said, well, we'll come back to Blood Feast in a further episode. Yeah. But having no plan of what that further episode was. Right. So this is it. This is kind of like the history behind, you know, splatter films, behind gore as a genre of films. So I'm super excited about it. I'm excited about it, too. And I'm also excited because I think this will be the grossest episode of the season because we usually have a gross fucking episode in pretty much every season. Yeah. You know, like bodily fluid woods was i think the grossest there super and then, gross and then parasites was pretty gross super nasty i don't know what the gross one from last season was yeah when you did head trauma that one upset me yeah that was pretty gross i was on the two. train listening to that in the morning <laughs> and i'm sure i was hungover, and i was like dry heaving listening to it and i was like i'm gonna listen to like npr for a minute to like cleanse my palate from my head trauma was really disgusting oh that good success yeah i tried not to make this one super super gross but like it's, it's gonna, gonna be, be gross. it's gonna be gross. i'm gonna yeah. make sure it's gross. okay good because you love splatter films I, don't you i I mean, yeah, give or take. Yeah. So, it's, they're not all great, but you like a good gore movie. Good gore is always appreciated. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. I agree. I'm excited. The funny thing about gore for me, though, is like, I don't watch a lot of it. You know, when I watch a movie and something gross happens and I cover my eyes, right. I like the excitement of the gore part, but then I don't want to watch it. Right. So fun fact about Slate. Yeah, he loves gross things, but doesn't really like to witness them. Right. Because you're a big fan of parasites, but you're like, I don't want to watch parasites. I, every time I looked at the parasite, I was like, oh, I cover my eyes, but yeah. I love that it's happening. Right, I just yeah. don't want to watch it. Yeah, that makes sense. What was that movie, 128 Hours? Is that what it was called? Yeah, Guy in the Arm. Yeah. James Franco. James Franco in the Arm. Yeah. That was one of my favorite movies of the year when that came out, but I didn't watch the entire scene where he cut his oh, arm yeah. off, which Ugh. was like a I mean, good 45 minutes of yeah, the movie. And I was bad. like, I love that movie. And my friend that saw it with me was like, you watched none of that movie. <laughs> and I was like, well, it was gross. Yeah, it's disgusting, but it's great. All right, ready? Oh, hell yeah. So as I mentioned, this episode comes from cannibalism, kind of that was where we 
we got the beginning of it. Right. But it also comes from pieces of multiple episodes across multiple seasons. Okay. You talked about splatter movies and head trauma. I talked about it some in Bad Babies, I yeah, think. I and think there so. was a splatter movie in Hicksploitation. So this right. is going to kind of cross a lot of episodes. As we keep saying, season five is kind of coming full circle from season one. So yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah. I'll do this some justice. Oh, good. All right. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Most people think that modern horror started with Edgar Allan Poe, and that's mostly true. Sure. Although you can trace it back to Horace Walpole's novel Castle of Otranto from 1764. But we're talking about gore today, not just horror, and that can be traced back to the Grand Guignol Theater in Paris from 1897. Okay, cool. The Grand Guignol Theater performed horror plays that were super violent. They typically weren't supernatural, more murdery and gory, but a few of the most memorable were plays that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but I'll describe them instead. Okay. There was one where a doctor finds his wife's lover in the operating room, so he performs a graphic brain surgery and turns him into a hallucinating zombie. Now that he's insane, he hammers a chisel into the doctor's brain. (laughs) That's crazy. There was one where the nanny strangles all the children in her care, and there was also one where two hags in an insane asylum use scissors to blind a pretty young fellow inmate out of jealousy. Damn. Remember when I mentioned in Hagsploitation that the genre got its influence from Grand Guignol Theater? So yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. it came from. But where did that even start? Like, someone's like, you know, these plays are boring. We need to up we the need gore. We need to gore these gore things the out. shit out of yeah. it. Yeah. That's one of the things that I always wondered about Grand Guignol Theater, which I knew nothing about, right. which is kind of like, what was this? It apparently didn't last very long it was kind of like a theater that was specializing in these types of things and then you know it was a 10 year type of thing and then all of a sudden it was over gotcha it's interesting. But let's talk about films. Yeah, great. Film gore can be traced back as far as D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, which was obviously the follow-up to Birth of a Nation. Yeah. D.W. Griffith movies were really violent for the time, and Intolerance had two on-screen decapitations and a scene in which a spear is slowly driven through a soldier's naked abdomen as blood comes up from the wound. Nice. Hold on real quick. So how did I miss this in head trauma since we were just talking about that? I don't know. I thought I this might everything. That might have been the first one. Now I gotta see that scene. I, I saw Intolerance when I was in film school, the first day of film school, they make you watch Birth of a Nation and then Intolerance and okay. Battleship Potemkin and everything. Right, and right. then you forget everything because, you know, you just want to watch Blood Feast. Do but... you remember the decapitations? Were they any good? No, I don't remember at all. Nah, I, gotta, yeah. I gotta look at that. Those up first couple months of film school are a little bit of a blur. <laughs> For Intolerance, these were historical scenes. I just need to mention that the goriest book in the world is the Bible. Yeah, especially the unedited one the director's cut yeah the Bible. One. yep but then of course the production code came along and that was the end of gore on screen and to be honest by the time world war ii came along people weren't much interested in gore like in the 30s and 40s since it was happening in real life yeah sure but as the 50s came to an end and hitchcock released psycho which had more gore in the shower scene than any other production code approved movies at the time right filmmakers started to see some opportunities oh i bet nudist films were really big in the 50s and early 60s but were presented as documents Documentaries. We talk about this all the time. Certainly, yeah. No sex whatsoever. And the laws were super vague, so filmmakers were really, really careful. Even once nudie cutie movies were coming out, there were nude comedies. There was no sex whatsoever. Uh-huh. An advertising guy from Chicago named Herschel Gordon Lewis was producing some of these nudie cutie movies on the side of his TV commercial productions. He made The Adventures of Lucky Pierre, Daughter of the Sun, and your favorite, Boing. It's epic classic. He saw pretty early early on that the nudism fad that he was a part of was kind of coming to an end. Right. And Hollywood was inventing the beach party movies at the time, <laughs> which were A-list actresses like yeah. Annette Funicello. Yeah. Prancing around in, you know, pointy bikini bras right. and stuff like that. And that all of a sudden became like the way that people saw like sex at the time. So yeah, like nudism certainly. could see a full blown naked person. Mm-hmm. It was more stimulating at the time to see Annette Funicello in a, in a bathing suit. Yeah. I love the scene in Stand By Me where they're talking about Annette Funicello's boobs. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Uh, That is great. Herschel Gordon Lewis had seen Psycho. He understood that it was basically a different type of exploitation film, but he thought that Hitchcock hadn't gone far enough with the shower scene. Along with his producer, Dave Friedman, they conceived a different genre of film that didn't come with the same risk of being prosecuted like the nudie and sex films they were making. And they sat down to Miami to make... Blood Feast. Blood Feast. 
Herschel loved this weird sphinx in front of the shitty Suez Motel, and he decided the film would have an Egyptian theme. Okay. He gathered actors, I use this term lightly, they were mostly coming from like his former nudie movies, right? and Playboy playmate Connie Mason, and he threw together a script with $25,000 and in four days shot the movie. Wow. The very rough plot of Blood Feast is an Egyptian man named Fuad runs a specialty grocery and catering business, and is approached to cater a special dinner party for Connie Mason thrown by her mom. Fuad starts collecting organs from different women, starting with a leg, then brains, then a tongue. The police start to investigate and slowly, very slowly, put together the pieces of the puzzle and finally figure out that the first girl murdered was in the same book club as Fuad. They rush to find him at Connie Mason's house, but he escapes in the back of a garbage truck. They chase him and he almost gets away, but then the trash compactor comes down on him and smashes them all up. It was quickly edited by Gary Sinise's dad, by the way. Oh, wow. And it premiered a month later. They decided to try Blood Feast in Peoria, Illinois, instead of in the big theaters in Chicago. Smart move, I bet. (laughs) They had a name in Chicago because, of course, obviously he was working in advertising and they had made all these nudie movies. But if they bombed in Peoria, nobody would ever find out. Okay. At first, people were laughing out loud at the shitty quality of the movie and the atrocious acting. Half of the cast, you can see them reading lines off of their hands and the furniture and stuff like that. It's really bad. Really, really bad, huh? I'm going to describe what audiences saw that night because it was completely different from any other violence they'd ever seen before on screen. Okay. The first scene is of a woman in the bathtub listening to a radio report that there's a killer on the loose. Of course. He, of course, shows up and kills her, but there's no action. His knife comes into frame and then there's a liver on it all of a sudden. Cut back to her and her eye is full of blood. He cuts off her leg and he sticks it in a bag. Mm. Cut to her hand dripping blood down the bathroom a la Psycho. Yeah. It's kind of gross, but seems like it might have even gone under the radar until the beach scene where there's a decapitation and Fuad the murderer like scoops up some brain gunk and puts it in the bag. The detectives are like trying to figure out who this murderer is, but then there's the scene that shocked everyone sitting in Peoria. Fuad attacks a screaming woman and rips her tongue out. You know, that's the classic scene from Blood Feast. Oh yeah. People freaked out. They really? were crying. They were throwing up. People were leaving the drive-in. That's amazing. It was super upsetting. So the next night, Herschel and Dave Friedman couldn't bear to wait anymore, and they drove down from Chicago to see how it was doing. They were getting closer to the theater, but there was a traffic jam. They started to kind of like worry that they weren't going to make it to the theater in time until they realized that it was the line to get into Blood Feast. <laughs> so they had a really big hit on that. Yeah, no shit. Everyone was going to see what the big deal was. I yeah. Guess. The first stop after Peoria was, of course, the Deep South. Back then, there were film territories with independently owned cinemas, especially the drive-ins. And even though the South was very quick to censor movies, there was nothing in Blood Feast that was on any of the law books. Yeah. There was no nudity, no obscene words, so there was nothing that the states or even local censors could do because they had never seen anything like it. That's not to say it wasn't censored, because local theaters would cut the prints themselves to try to keep from being busted. This resulted in a lot of people seeing scenes that others had and also added to the urban legendary of the movie as well. Oh, I bet. The I heard a woman's tongue was ripped out and the police made them take that scene out because they really did rip a woman's tongue out for real. Of course. You know, type thing just added to the whole, you know, mystery of the movie. But the reviews were a completely different story. I'm sure. The critic for the Los Angeles Times called it a blot on the American film industry. (laughs) Variety said it was incredibly crude and unprofessional from start to finish and an insult even to the most pure and salacious of audiences. They said Herschel Gordon Lewis's direction, camera work, and musical composition, quote, failed dismally on all three counts, but no one cared. Blood Feast played for years and years and years and years on the drive-in circuit, completely unrated and without the production code, and depending on who you ask, made anywhere from 7 to $30 million. Wow. Yeah. And it was like filmed for what, eight bucks? Like $25, yeah. I think, yeah. Blood Feast was a runaway success, and Dave and Herschel knew that the imitators would start making knockoffs super soon, so they immediately went into production on a second gore movie. Okay. This time with a much larger budget, this time they had $62,000. Wow. Which was almost three times what the budget was for Blood Feast. That movie they made was the Hicksploitation classic 2000 Maniacs from 1964. I'm excited to hear about this one. Rough plot, and I took this directly from the Hicksploitation episode, so sorry. Six northerners get detoured into a small southern town on the 100th anniversary of when the town was attacked and destroyed by the North in the Civil War. 
the crazy bloodthirsty townspeople murder them in some pretty creative ways Mm -hmm. as retribution. One man gets murdered when each of his four limbs are tied to four horses, and then the horses are all called, and they rip his body apart in four sections. That has a term, right? Uh, Drawn and quartered. Drawn and quartered. It turns out that they're all spirits of the dead Civil War Southerners that appear only once every 100 years to, like, fuck shit up in the name of the South. Yeah. And it has a country twangy kind of score performed by Herschel Gordon-Lewis, basically because they didn't want to pay anyone else. Right. You're all invited to a centennial celebration. What they were celebrating wasn't important, and it sounded like a heap of fun until... 2,000 maniacs, crazed for carnage, started bathing an entire town in pulsing human blood. You'll see six young strangers doomed to slaughter by an ancient curse. And from his lips there came an awful sound. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. You'll see the most diabolical device ever contrived, designed solely for assassination by a town of madmen, insane with bloodlust. Stonewall took a gun and he made the Yankees run, but he... 2,000 maniacs, gruesomely stained in blood color. Stonewall said, I'm giving you a dying man's request. The extra money they put into it totally paid off. There was lighting, a soundtrack, a couple people that could actually act, and 16 days as opposed to four from Blood Feast. Damn. But the main thing 2000 Maniacs had was extras. They filmed in St. Cloud, Florida, and the whole town came out to help out in the movie. (laughs) The extras make it look like a legit studio film. That's great. But let's talk about the gore. Yeah. You're a good 20 minutes in before you get your first shock, and that is a hillbilly cuts off a woman's thumb. She runs to get it fixed by a doctor, but he and the other townspeople strap her to a table and cut her arm off with an axe. It was actually a mannequin arm. Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Dave Friedman do a director's commentary Mm -hmm. on the thing, you know, 40 years later. It's super interesting. Then that's I'm, a famous still. Yeah. Anytime you see like Herschel Gordon Lewis referred, they always show that with she's on the table screaming and he's got the axe and the fake arm. And yeah, shit. yeah. Super cool. Then the man gets drawn and quartered, which we talked about. Then they put a man in a barrel and drive a bunch of nails into the top of it and push him down a hill mm-hmm. until he hits a post and his bloody body rolls out. It's kind of amazing. And that's kind of cool. Then they throw him into a creek. Of course. A woman is tied to a platform and a huge boulder is dropped on her head, a la like Lord of the Flies. Yeah. This scene in particular is super upsetting because of how grueling it is. That was something that Blood Feast didn't really understand. Blood Feast violence was just kind of like, ah, and then you rip the tongue out. Right. In this scene of where they want to drop the boulder on her head, you know, they strap her down. She's screaming. She's resisting. And like taunting her and yeah, laughing and, and stuff like, like that. Yeah, it's just like it goes on for a really yeah, long yeah, yeah. time, considering that the action of dropping a boulder on someone is pretty quick it's like boop you yeah. fell on her it's the cruelty part of yeah. the build-up that i think is makes it more disturbing exactly and yeah. it was something that they didn't understand in blood feast but clearly got once they started making 2000 maniacs yeah it's one of those horror tricks that makes last house on the left texas chainsaw massacre and even human centipede work so well just the grueling nature of it and from what right. i'm kind of gathering from this it might have begun with 2000 maniacs so that, that might be the first movie that actually did the grueling horror you know, kind of gore drop. Right. Uh, if I'm wrong about that, someone please correct me. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but you could be wrong. Yeah. I'm, I'm all the time. So yeah, it makes sense. Dave Friedman and Herschel Gordon Lewis's third and final film together was Color Me Blood Red from 1965. Okay. It's a lesser film to the other two, but it has some interesting moments. Rough plot, a dickhead painter has lost his painting mojo until he realizes blood makes the perfect color on his canvases. It does. It's very striking. He kills his girlfriend and uses her body parts to paint a new piece of art, which he takes to a gallery and everyone loves it. Everyone being the two people that are in the gallery. Yeah. Budget. Mm -hmm. He buries his girlfriend in the sand and then he kills two other teenagers to make new paintings. He offers another teen to paint her and he ties her up. But right before he kills her, her boyfriend and friends show up and blow his head off. His paintings are burned by the gallery. And this is where Dave Friedman and Herschel Gordon-Lewis's relationship kind of fell apart. Okay. According to both of them, they were making good money and had a third partner that was securing a deal to make them a full-on exploitation production company. Okay. They were supposed to hold back a bunch of the profits from Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs and use it as proof to the banks that they were making money, but that money disappeared and the production company never happened. Herschel Gordon-Lewis had gone on to make Moonshine Mountain. Oh, Moonshine Mountain. uh Uh-huh. The Hillbilly musical I talked about in Hicksploit 
visitation. Oh, yeah. But they got in a fight over the missing money and how they were going to finish up Moonshine Mountain when that third partner had basically disappeared and they just split ways. Gotcha. Herschel Gordon Lewis went on to direct a wide variety of exploitation films, but he continued to make gore films throughout the 60s, including two memorable ones, the first being A Taste of Blood from 1967. Okay. A Taste of Blood is a two full hour vampire gore movie that he <laughs> considered to be his best film up to that point, although the internet disagrees. Have you seen it? I have not. I'm not a huge vampire person. No. So yeah, but I have seen this next one, which was Gruesome Twosome from 1967. <laughs> Do you remember I had this on VHS I'm sure when I was did. 14 God knows or 15? You had on VHS. Yeah, it's about hair and wigs. Hmm. So an old woman and her special needs adult son own a wig shop and rent rooms to young college women. But they do all this by killing the women, scalping them, and then selling the wigs at the store. Isn't that kind of the basic plot of Maniac? So I'm glad you mentioned that, because we're going to talk about this oh, again. sorry. Jumping ahead. So I did write, that's a decent business model. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah. I mean, by this time, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was getting better at the gore scenes. And this one even makes me turn away, because it's a lot of scalping scenes. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm kind of like, I love scalpings, but I don't watch any of them. No, no, yeah, it's pretty gross. All this time, everyone was expecting someone to come in and rip off the gore genre, but it didn't really seem to happen. Right. Jack Hill and Roger Corman were still making a wide variety of exploitation films, but nothing really in the gore department. Mm -hmm. And it was starting to wane in popularity in the late 60s as peace and love started becoming the underground movement. You know, Blood and Guts wasn't rebellious anymore. Being anti-war was the thing. Sure. There were some exceptions, of course. The Headless Eyes from 1971 is about a poor artist that gets his eye gouged out during a robbery. He then goes on a killing spree and cuts out women's eyes with a spoon. It actually made it on the UK's video nasty list. Herschel Gordon also made two more gore films, the first being The Wizard of Gore from 1970, <laughs> which had a magician performing tricks on women, like sawing them in half, for example. And actually sawing them in half? No, but later they mysteriously die in the same way. So like oh. they walk away and they're fine because it's a fake magic trick, but all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm cut in half. Oh. It's an interesting kind of... Yeah, that oh. is good premise. He also made The Gore Gore Girls from 1972, which was his last film. The Gore Gore Girls, it's like Go-Go girls but like gore, 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 you got yeah. that okay i yeah. can tell sorry this movie is much grosser and more mean-spirited than the past few splatter movies yeah and it kind of killed the genre it's about a serial killer that kills strippers but it has a really nasty scene that i want to tell you about so i actually watched this one okay the murderer creeps into a woman's house while she's deep frying french fries Ugh. and he slits her throat then he takes a pair of scissors out and he cuts off her nipple and milk squirts out of it. And then he cuts off her other nipple and for some reason chocolate milk spurts out of it. That makes no sense. Yeah. And then another stripper comes in and he pushes her face into the French fries. I was waiting for you to bring up the French oh, fryer. Oh, God. It's that's terrible. really upsetting. Yeah, that's horrible. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the end of the Herschel Gordon Lewis invented splatter genre. Probably for the best. Yeah. The mid to late 70s were an amazing time for American film as we talk about all the time. certainly. And there wasn't really a huge place for gore movies. You know, movies like The Wild Bunch, Bonnie and Clyde, A Clockwork Orange, like those movies could satisfy most people's need for violence in theaters. But then a new form of gore film would surface in the form of the cannibal genre, which we talked about in our very first episode on cannibalism in season one. Yep. The cannibal genre spun off a combination of the old Johnny Weissmeller Tarzan movies mm-hmm. and the Richard Harris Western A Man Called Horse, which basically had white people going into the Amazon jungles and getting eaten by native people there. Yeah. The cannibal genre wasn't hugely popular. It only put out 10 or 15 movies, but boy, they were really something different at the time. Yeah, they were. One of the main things that they had was cruelty to animals, which was usually very real. Yeah, real cruelty to animals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fucked up. Remember when I said Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Dave Friedman created Blood Feast because they wanted to create a genre that didn't yet exist and couldn't be shut down by censors? Right. The cannibal genre kind of did the same thing with animal violence. If audiences had grown immune to the fake organs, brains, and eyeballs, then watching people skin animals alive and eat them was, I guess, at least an alternative. Yeah, it's terrible. I love cannibal movies, but even I can't watch those gross dead animal scenes. No. And I haven't seen Cannibal Faroe, but I have seen Cannibal Holocaust, of course. Mm -hmm. We talked about that in Snuff as well. There's plenty of actual animal death. There is in Cannibal Pharaoh, too, I have it. Yeah. Shit. I think it's Cannibal Ferox. 
right. think I said Faroe one time, like I was French or something. I thought it's pronounced French like. French like. Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever. We don't know. We pronounce it. Cannibale Faroe. <laughs> Your high school French class really paid off. Doing for you. great. Yeah. But the movie that brought back a renaissance of gore, really the second wind of the gore genre after Blood Feast, was George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978. Right. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the dead. Meet me on the roof at nine o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, except the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences, George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. Dawn of the Dead was a sort of reimagining of his earlier film Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. but with a lens of post-Vietnam America consumerism that a lot of horror movies didn't really have at the time. This is arguably the best zombie movie ever made, but it was really the gore makeup effects of Tom Savini that revived the gore genre for another 10 years. Oh yeah, definitely. Savini was a Vietnam vet and actor that had been doing makeup effects to scare people since he was a kid. Romero hired him to do the zombie makeup and bite marks on the victims, but it was the special details that Savini he brought to the film that really make it stick out. Oh, certainly. He gave all the zombie extras a similar look when it came to like their skin tones and, mm-hmm. you know, hair and makeup. But then some of the zombie characters that had more camera time, he gave them like different looks and personalities. Mm-hmm. So they weren't just like, oh, we're all the same zombie. Like there was like sweater guy, you know, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. That Love you were like, oh, guy. this person used to be a real person, but is now a zombie. And mm-hmm. so they're all a little different. It's just a really interesting take that you probably wouldn't have thought of, you know. Right. Tom Savini's makeup effects were used in another gore film Maniac from 1980 Mm -hmm. Maniac was the lowest of low budget horror flicks designed for the last wave of Times Square grindhouses before home video closed them all down in the mid 80s it was filmed in New York City it's about a serial killer somewhat based on the son of Sam that kills and scalps young women and places their hair on mannequins there's your gruesome twosome there's your gruesome twosome Uh I just want to cut in real quick too and say that Tom Savini also was a pioneer in the exploding head effect I built in a little discussion point for us to talk about it so go ahead just that, you know, he did it in Dawn of the Dead, right. which was memorable. But in Maniac, when that person got a shotgun to the face, that was like super, super disturbing. And you want to talk about how he did it? Yes. So if I remember correctly, so I talked about this in Head Drama, of course. Mm-hmm. They got like a mannequin face or whatever. And it was Tom Savini played that role. And he played that role. Zone mannequin face. Yeah. And so he got a mold of his face. And he also, I think, shot himself in the face. He was the one that actually pulled the trigger Correct. on his yep. own dummy. They actually shot a real shotgun in city limits mm-hmm. into that car. Right. And then you know, after they filmed it, they got the fuck out of there before the cops could show up because they didn't have a permit. Well, they didn't have a permit to shoot on the street and they sure as shit didn't have a permit to have a, a live round shooting into this car. Correct. Two things to mention. One, the head was full of old food, which oh, yeah. I thought was old really food. funny. Yeah, that really was disgusting. what his gore was. But actually what happened was is they had a standby car and as soon as he shot it, mm-hmm. he handed the guy in the standby car the gun and that guy drove away with the gun. Right. So that if anything happened, they could be like what gun so they couldn't evacuate the set fast enough when the cops came so they just got rid of the gun immediately and that was the plan they would shoot the gun for real and get the gun the hell out of there and they did it like once yeah like boom one one and done yeah yeah Another early 80s gore classic was The Evil Dead from 1981. Oh, yeah. The Evil Dead was the Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell's collaborative film, everybody knows this, made on a shoestring budget in the woods of Tennessee, which after numerous cuts and editing by Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers, did you know this? Yeah. Yeah. Went on to receive rave critic reviews, including Stephen King. It played can and is considered to be one of the greatest cult horror movies ever made. A year later, The Thing brought alien gore into the mainstream, and then there was Reanimator from 19. 1985. Yeah. And great. then of course Street Trash from 1987. <laughs> 
street trash is kind of where I'm leaving the 80s because it was kind of the end of the gore genre. But it's kind of interesting. Street Trash is a movie no one's ever heard of besides listeners of this podcast. But it did kind of add something a little different was that weird melting effect. The whole melting effect. was yeah. completely different at the time. But like, where did that come from? There's several movies that feature that. It's yeah. a thing. We talked about it before, but we never, we never explored it. But yeah. It's a thing. Can someone please out there figure out what this melting thing, who did it first, why it was a thing, and then why after Street Trash you never saw it again? You didn't see it again. So one more thing before we leave the 80s, though. Evil Dead 2, yeah. which was essentially a remaking of the first movie, mm-hmm. but more slapsticky, held the record at the time of most blood used in a movie. It was super gory, but yeah, more yeah. funny than anything else. Uh-huh. I mean, I love that movie, but yeah. both of them are great, the first and second one. But that one sort of took the gore and added humor to it. Yeah. Gore movies pretty much fell out of fashion around the late 80s as some more high-concept horror properties were coming out. Okay. Hellraiser in 1987. Love it. Child's Play in 1988. Yeah. Pet Cemetery in 1989. Oscar winners Misery in 1990 and Silence of the Lambs in 1991. Right. Horror was starting to get a little bit more highbrow. Mm-hmm. There were gore movies that came out, of course, as you mentioned earlier on break, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Oh, yeah. Hen and Lauder's Brain Damage. It wasn't until the early 2000s when the splatter industry got revived again and kind of caught its third wind. Right. And the person we have to thank for that is Eli Roth. Yep. And that movie was Cabin Fever in 2001. Mm-hmm. Eli Roth was a film student at NYU that had done some work for David Lynch and was working as a PA on Howard Stern's private parts right. when he co-wrote the script for Cabin Fever after contracting a weird skin disease. It took a few years, but he got a $1.5 million budget and he directed and produced it with Boy Meets World star Ryder Strong in his first starring role. I I was a big Boy Meets World fan. I imagine that. Rough plot, a bunch of college students go to a podunk woods cabin for spring break. The town is kind of equal parts Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I Spit on Your Grave, which were clearly big influences. Mm -hmm. It has all the trappings of a slasher movie, but it's not that at all. It's actually pretty surprising. Instead of a crazed redneck killer on the loose, it's a flesh-eating virus that starts picking off the teenagers one by one. After basically everyone dies, Ryder Strong finds a rotting corpse in the water reservoir and, of course, accidentally falls on top of it. He figures out that people are catching it from the water and tries to escape the town after offing a few of the townspeople. There's a lot of animal violence, FYI, as well, like mm-hmm. dogs and deer. He hits a deer and the deer's like legs are all like hitting him in the face and the, he's weird animal violence. Yeah, very strange. He finds a bunch of teenagers and spews blood all over him, but he makes it to the hospital. He can't really provide any clear help for the doctors. And at the end, we see bottled water trucks driving away from the creek. So, of course, here right, it goes yeah, to, yeah. you know, zombie apocalypse. Right. With Eli Roth as horror's new darling, Lionsgate Films were eagerly awaiting his next script. Since Cabin Fever was so successful, they took a chance on another low-budget movie that another film student, James Wan, had tried unsuccessfully to get made in Australia. Do you know what that movie was? Is it Saw? It is Saw from 2004. Great. Hello, Dr. Gordon. I want to play a game. The Jigsaw Killer. With a razor wire. Technically speaking, he's not really a murderer. He never killed anyone. Dr. Gordon, your aim in this game is to kill Adam. If you do not, then Diana will die. He finds ways for his victims to kill themselves. I'm sick of people who don't appreciate their blessings. I've given you a life purpose. Looks like our friend Jigsaw likes to book himself front row seats to his own sick games. He doesn't want us to cut through our chains. He wants us to cut through our feet. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive. Not anymore. I actually saw Saw in the theaters when it first came out, and the same friend that I made watch Gummo with me, (laughs) and she was horrified by the movie Saw. And I think that was the movie where she said, I'm not letting you pick the movies anymore. I'm going to read the reviews of anything you suggest from now on. I'm really surprised she didn't say that after you made her watch Gummo, to be honest. I think that she was kind of like, oh, he's a film student, because I was in film school at the time, so she was like giving me a little bit more credit, Mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, I'm going to have to watch some movies that I probably 
don't like. But by the time we were out of college and we were just going to the theater and seeing stuff, she was like, you're, you don't get this anymore. Like, <laughs> That's funny to me. Yeah, she was horrified. As, yeah, as she should be. I only saw it that one time, but it's a pretty great premise. It is. Two men wake up in chains in a disgusting bathroom. There's a dead body, some hacksaws not strong enough to cut the chains, and some cassette tapes explaining what they have to do to escape. Spoiler, someone has to cut off his own foot to get out. Right. Saw was made for a measly $1.2 million and ended up making over $100 million worldwide, making it the most profitable horror movie since 1996 Scream. It became a huge franchise, due in part to its villain Jigsaw, a weird cancer survivor wearing a puppet clown kind of mask thing. Saw got really bad reviews, but still got seven sequels and has earned almost a billion dollars worldwide. Also, the guy that plays Jigsaw, Jamie Bell. Yeah is an actor that deserves better than the Saw series. (laughs) (laughs) It's made him a lot of money. It has made a lot of money, so good for him. But yeah, yeah, I think he added legitimacy to that character because he did such a good job in it. The movies, the first one's great. The first one's really They become garbage as they go along, but it's coming back again, right? Jigsaw just came out, I think was the eighth sequel, and I think they're already like remaking their own remake. Jesus. Saw only fueled America's thirst for gore and Mm -hmm. torture, and Eli Roth doubled down with Hostel in 2005. Oh yeah. First off, Hostel is is no joke. Like Cabin Fever and Saw, it's pretty original, and critics noticed that. They also used it to coin the term torture porn, which was then applied to Saw, Last House on the Left, and I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah. It got decent reviews for a horror movie, though, and it made a fortune at the box office. Yeah. Have you seen Hostel? Yes. It suffers from what Cabin Fever also suffered from, which we haven't talked about, which mm-hmm. I feel like Eli Roth puts every whim in his movie, whether or not he, tonally he should. Like, uh-huh. you know, Cabin Fever's got the slow motion karate chopping kid that's out of nowhere. Right. Hostel's got some really frightening and disturbing moments, but then we'll do gore for humor. You know, like he's like, hey, I'm going to do this one Sam Raimi type of thing for the fuck of it. There's a couple of moments of where you're kind of like, did you need that? Right. Did you have to go into kind of like this slapsticky, right. you know, type of thing? Specifically, and I'll talk about it in a minute, but, you know, there's a scene of where a couple characters come back and so he hits them with the car and then backs over another one. And it was like, yeah. did you need all that? Right. Or were you, could you have been okay without that? Yeah, exactly. Hostel is about two American college students traveling to Eastern Europe and staying in hostels along the way they meet other travelers and some hot girls that they have sex with but then they ultimately drug them and they both end up in an abandoned slovakian warehouse where rich americans pay big bucks to torture and kill people yeah obviously americans get the most money mm-hmm. i remember when i saw this the first time and realized that this was a rich person's social networking club and thinking oh shit this might be real like this could maybe really be a real thing well it's fucked up it's super super fucked up which is why it's kind of a great movie right well, I'm going to fun fact it. There's a cameo by Takashi Miike in that. Oh, that's right. He plays a customer. Yeah. yeah. And he has like a line. I don't know what it was. It's like someone can spend all their money here or something like that. But he's just there for a moment. So that's kind of cool that yeah. core master freaking Takashi Miike. Yeah. From Audition, things. which I didn't even talk about in this episode. But yeah. Yeah. It kind of shows up in this movie. But Hostel 2 has a great cameo too that I'll talk about in a minute. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about the gore elements. Yeah. You're about 35 minutes into the movie before any actual violence happens. Yeah. That moment 35 minutes in is when a woman gets her toe cut off by a pair of clipping shears, but we don't know really know why and we don't really know where that's happening. Yeah. About 10 or 15 minutes later, the lead character's best friend wakes up from being drugged and is in a prison-type warehouse where he's chained to a chair. The man that brought him sticks a drill press in his chest, cuts his leg tendons so he can't escape, and then cuts his throat. Yeah, terrible. We later see him again, and he has his whole chest open, and the guy, he was like a rejected surgeon, Mm -hmm. is playing around like all in his body, like tinkering around in there. Hmm. As the lead is being dragged down the hall, he looks into each of the rooms, and inside each one, there's a torturer and a torchee. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a word. Once the lead is abducted, the man that has bought him has a chainsaw and cuts two of his fingers off. Mm-hmm. The lead struggles, and the killer slips on his severed fingers. Remember this? Oh, yeah, It's yeah, kind yeah. of slapsticky. Yeah. And falls with the chainsaw, cutting most of his leg off. The lead, I think his name is Paxton. Let's just say it's Paxton. Kills him and gets away by hiding in a pile of dead bodies. Oh, yeah. A butcher hacks up body parts to fit in the incinerator and Paxton kills him with an axe. He goes back to rescue another girl and finds her with her eyeball hanging out. Do you remember this? Oh yeah, I remember that. And he mercy cuts the eyeball off and yeah. then pus 
like squirts really, out. It's really, it's gross, really yeah. great. And here's the scene that I, we were talking about. He sees the girls that tricked him while he's driving and he hits him with his car and then he backs up over the girl that he had sex with. Right. Eyeball girl jumps in front of a train and blood gets splattered all over the people on the platform. And at the very end, he sees that surgeon guy that killed his best friend and he slits his throat in a bathroom stall. So at least it has a happy ending. It does. Wasn't there a guy, like the cold sore guy that let him come into the hostel? Didn't you run him over too? It was the two girls and cold sore guy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it is kind of funny. I was talking to one of my coworkers about this movie yesterday because I had just watched it again. Uh-huh. And it is funny because it kind of turns into a revenge movie, you know, in its third act. And then yeah. he's got to, I mean, basically the movie kind of has nowhere to go once you figure out this whole system. Right. And so he's got to kill his way out of Slovakia, right. which is kind of cool. But it's just interesting that it really does some surprising things. It turns into a revenge movie. Right. It does. I mean, it's all 70s homage. You yeah, know, with a spin, torture spin. But yeah, the revenge part especially is, yeah. just reminds me of some, you know, it's all Grindhouse. Probably why Tarantino likes Eli Ross so much. And produced both of them. Yeah. Right, yeah. I love Hostel. I just think it's a terrific movie. I think it's really well done. And I just thought it was super innovative. I'm not the biggest Eli Roth fan. Mm-hmm. I thought Hostel was okay. I actually liked the sequel better. So because... let's talk about it for okay. a second because I'm good, just good. about to talk about it. Oh, and great, I didn't great, great. really write much about it. I actually own it. And yeah. I didn't have time to watch it again before the podcast so I'm only going to talk about it in things that I remember so it's focus is different in that it focuses on two Americans that have paid to kill people mm-hmm. and matter of fact spoiler Paxton or whatever the fuck his name he is he dies the in the first like five minutes right yeah. and of course that's slapsticky too because his girlfriend comes and sees his head's missing he's sitting at the kitchen table of course a cat's licking the stump I like that that's kind of funny yeah, yeah. But then it kind of shows the point of view of the two Americans. One's like a gung-ho guy that's mm-hmm. trying to get his nerdy friend to, you know, like, hey, we're going to have a good time killing somebody. And the nerdy friend's like, I don't I don't know if I can do it. Yeah. And then, of course, it spins and it turns out the nerdy guy develops a taste for it. And the guy that was gung-ho like was like, I don't want to do this. Right. And then it goes from there. And then this time, the killies are girls. So oh, yeah, it's right. B- Bijou Phillips and Heather Matarazaro from Welcome to the Dollhouse. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, love, I love that she was in this. Yeah. But this one is more slapsticky than the first one, right? Right. Yeah. I think so, I yeah. I thought I remembered it. I re- do remember that there's a scene at the very end where those kids, the, like, gangster kids, mm-hmm. are, like, kicking somebody's head around like a soccer ball. Oh, yeah, Wasn't yeah. it something like that? Did I, I make so. that up? I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a better movie, even though I don't hold them in high regard as movies. Uh I know you like it more than I do, but the second one is better, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Also, somebody's dick gets fed to a bunch of dogs. Yeah, I remember that part. I like that. That was good. We'll talk more about that in our episode on John Waters. Oh, I'm excited. Hostel 2 didn't hit the same way that Hostel 1 hit. It really kind of didn't really make that much money. Mm -hmm. It was hacked before it came out. So like a lot of people had downloaded it and watched it before it came out in theaters. Just like every other genre, it was kind of of the end of the gore genre it had kind of started to fall out of fashion so even though he had kind of created this new you know genre of gore film in 2001 by 2007 he kind of ended it himself well and you gotta remember everything else that came out that was characterized as torture porn you know you had wolf creek right the australian movie that followed a lot of these same lines there was one i think it was like corporate retreat yeah, or some some, some big, shit yeah. and had that you know so there was a lot of the movies that started following suit not to mention i feel like the saw sequels were well on their way by that point. So I think yeah. people were just burned out by that genre anyway. Yeah, totally. It's one of those things that kind of comes and goes, and I'm kind of starting to wrap up a little bit now, but it's one of those things that comes, and when it comes, it hits really hard. A lot of people do it, and then within about five years, it's it's pretty much over. So, right. so there's a couple more movies that I want to talk about, but what I will say from looking at history, it seems like the first wave of gore movies was from 1964 to about 1967. Okay. The second was 1978 to about 1983 mm-hmm. and the third wave of gore films started in 2001 and ended around 2007 yeah but between this there was house of a thousand corpses from mm-hmm. rob zombie and in 2003 which was his take on exploitation gore movies mm-hmm. the french film inside from 2007 oh, remember God. this yeah, one yeah yeah it featured a woman who cut another woman's baby out of her stomach it's yeah. disgusting it is gross this was kind of like the french horror new wave french extreme yeah horror. and it was like you know films like high tension and martyrs you know yeah, so yeah. kind of a different time over there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Dutch film The Human Centipede from 2009. Right. We talked about it ad nauseum in Attack of the Transplants, but this was kind of a different take on the gore film. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like 2009, so it was kind of after it was already over. But remember that it was 
hundred percent medically accurate. <laughs> so, uh, and also kind of relatively restrained. It's not really a gore movie, but no, it is kind of disturbing. like, a, yeah, it's a super disturbing movie. There was also Antichrist from 2009, oh, which yeah. was Lars Van Trier's kind of misogynistic gore film. The scene I'm specifically talking about is when Charlotte Gainsborough hits William Defoe in the nuts with a piece of wood, gets ah. him hard, jacks him off, and then he ejaculates blood which we talked about that in puke and jizz right was one of our bodily fluids one of my that's favorites. Sc- oh god Ugh. and then there's a serbian film from 2010 <laughs> yeah. i forgot have you seen this yeah actually i watched it after we had talked about it i uh-huh. never really saw it before oh so, really so i finally watched it and i'm like it's gory and disgusting but not as bad as i was led to believe mm-hmm. it would be it's one of those movies that like so few people have actually seen it all the way through mm-hmm. that it's like an initiation type thing and then when you watch it you're kind of like okay i survived that the thing is is that as i was watching it i didn't realize how overly absurd it was Uh it's so absurd that it's like if sam raimi lost his fucking mind and did a foreign film it would be serbian film because it's just so ridiculous guy impales somebody's brain with a heart on with his hard dick he sticks it in a guy's eye socket and he kills him yeah that's fucking absurd i agree i agree and almost funny what did you think about the scene where a baby is born and then a man immediately fucks the baby it's terrible Mm -hmm. it didn't bother me that much i thought that was ridiculous it's it's totally ridiculous i I was just like that has never happened that never will happen that is not a thing no and so people that were horrified by that i was like i didn't find that that crazy it's the thing is they don't try to show it right they were like this is a horrible thing we're about to do and so we'll just show reactions of, yeah, to yeah, it yeah. and stuff which it didn't really bother me that much it's just a weird ride and so it, it kind of numbs you to it after a while anyway right. so. so the funny thing about the serbian film in this podcast is we had talked about this a little bit in one of the former episodes mm-hmm. and i cut it all out because it was just too much yeah we cut it out of bad babies oh that's right it was just it was too gross but now it's kind of like season five and i don't give a shit anymore yeah, who cares? because i want to tell you what i thought the most upsetting scene in the whole movie was. all right which one was it i'm gonna be weird talking about it <laughs> It's, I forget exactly what happened, but basically they're using horse sexy juice to put in him so that he can like keep it hard on while all these horrible things happen. And it makes him go crazy too, so he doesn't have any control over his Yeah, like horse, what would you call that? Like, you know, like horse stimulant, Horse stimulant, horse sexy juice, I think is what I call it. Horse sexy juice, yeah. That's the patent name. So... I can't believe you're laughing. You know, you haven't laughed at something inappropriate since season one. Back when we were talking about Angel. So horse it's about time it comes juice. back around. Yeah. Hashtag horse sexy juice. <laughs> Continue. So he's supposed to get the horse sexy juice injected into him, but he injects it into that lady instead. Okay. And she like goes crazy. And you think that she dies. He disappears. And then all of a sudden she comes out and she's covered in blood in the vag area. And she has basically like been fucking herself to death with like a pole, you know, or something sharp. But she got so sexied up from the horse sexy juice that she was just like pounding herself with like this (laughs) whatever. And I was I had to stop it and like walk around and like calm down because I was very upset by that. Yeah, that's 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 terrible. I forgot all about that scene. Yeah. I'm kinda glad I did forget about that scene. Okay, you wanna move on? Yeah, please. I wanna close this with Eli Roth's latest film, The Green and Inferno from 2016. Yeah. One of the reasons why Cabin Fever and Hostel movies work so well is because Eli Roth knows his shit. Sure. Cabin Fever was a fresh take on Evil Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre type of movie. Mm-hmm. Hostel was kind of the Eastern European version of 2000 Maniacs and maybe even some gruesome twosome when you think about it. If you replace the Deep South with Slovakia and instead of killing women to sell their hair, you've got a business where you sell Americans to wealthy people to kill. Mm-hmm. Like the plot structures are kind of similar there. Yeah. Eli Roth Roth loved Cannibal Holocaust and the cannibal genre in general and decided to make an homage to it. It had some financial and studio problems from the beginning and it took a long time to come out. But I will say that at least he didn't try to remake Cannibal Holocaust like so many other directors would have done and have done. Right. At least he modernized the story and did something a little bit different. Green Inferno didn't really do much at the box office and it seemed like he was kind of already planning a sequel. The movie sets up a sequel but it sounds like he kind of just was like let's just not do that and well it was barely released right i mean it wasn't widely released at all no we went to go see it on opening night and then i did a little 
little bit on it in cannibalism like a postscript about it i remember that i liked it more than the people that i watched it with i really wanted to like it so i think when i the fact that it existed made me like it and even though it probably wasn't really that great of a movie standalone yeah i did really like seeing the gore genre come full circle sure because like most of these movies like blood feast was super super original and everything else has kind of been like a different spin on that and kind of like a different take on the gore genre so i really liked that he had kind of done homages to all these other movies and he actually made an homage to the cannibal genre which not a lot of people would have done no no we probably got another 10 or 15 years before like the gore genre is going to come back again if it stopped in 2007 probably about 20 years yeah but my guess is someone like a herschel gordon lewis a tom savini or eli roth is going to come up with a new genre of gore movie and that's going to be the way that it you know that it comes back again is someone's going to reimagine it yeah and sure will be the future of gore what do you think it's fascinating i mean we've talked about gory movies forever so this is not too groundbreaking for me i knew most of this stuff but you know it is interesting how the market will bring this stuff back you know when hostile and all that shit came out those movies were making money at the time yeah people wanted to see that in in a post 9-11 world or that feeling of helplessness that people felt during 9-11 somehow manifests itself in these torture porn movies where people were totally helpless getting tortured to death yep and for some reason that got an audience at the time so i don't got know what me. this is about i saw all these movies in the theater i mean so, i saw yeah. a good i didn't see any of them in the theater but i definitely saw all of them yeah. or most of them and it somehow reached out to the zilt or whatever you want to call it at the time yeah and now it's sort of fading again but you're right something i mean i'm not saying someone's gonna, gonna in, come up with something new yes. and then it's going to revive this again for the fourth time but it'll come back it always comes back yeah, it's just sure. cyclic even when you're talking about a quiet place you mm-hmm. know which is just coming out this weekend it's a pg-13 rated horror movie and that's the new thing i mean it's not really the new thing that kind of started with a sixth sense but horror movies that anybody can go see meaning teenagers because that's kind of like the box office draw for them but it's like you can't put gore in a pg-13 movie so if you're gonna make a mainstream horror movie it's got to be pg-13 so naturally the gore genre doesn't fit into that so as soon as that swings back around and somebody puts out some horrifying gore disgusting movie again it's going to turn back into that right i will say what's interesting about the gore genre now that i think about it is it's made its way to tv mm-hmm. you've got shows like the walking dead which is super yeah. gory i mean the guy's head gets bashed in by a baseball bat and plus zombie carnage is is pretty fascinating that we're, we have a higher tolerance of gore that it's on our tv yeah totally but they've toned down the exploitation piece of it like in movies right well and that's funny that's one of the things that i was talking about that after the first wave of gore movies hollywood kind of co-opted violence and yeah. so you could go see first run feature that had a lot of violence not necessarily gore but a lot of blood in it right and it was kind of like Hollywood ripped off an exploitation I mean they do that all the time so I don't know why I'm acting like it's so surprising but you know violence is co-opted now so yeah if you can see gore in a mainstream film you don't need hostile to come out speaking of gore you and I were just talking because it was Easter recently and we talked about passion (laughs) of the Christ and I talk about it of course in blasphemy that's as gory as any Eli Roth movie it's a snuff film it is a snuff film It is slow motion, flesh torn yeah. gore. And of course, it came out right in the middle of the torture porn era. Yeah. I, I don't know how to explain it, but right. it's, it's somehow like old it ladies absorbed. were like getting on like church buses <laughs> to like go see Jesus be like ripped apart. Yeah. Eli like, Roth's The Jesus Story. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter, everybody. So that's a fascinating piece, too. I, I mean, love it. that is the fucking snuff film. Yeah. Great episode. I knew a lot of the stuff, but yeah, sure. you filled in a lot of the gaps that I didn't know. And that was I kind of was what great. I wanted to do was tell it kind of from a beginning to end, just yeah. because I knew about all three of these phases, but I didn't really understand why they came in and went out and like what a lot of the context was and what other movies were coming out at the time. So yeah. I just kind of wanted to put it into kind of like chronological order of like how these three things started and kind of finished and where we are now. Now. So yeah, I hope that that was informative. Definitely. It was very informative. So I, I really liked the episode. Hope you all enjoyed Splatter, especially the baby rape part. <laughs> That's so terrible. <laughs> they know what to expect from us now. This I shouldn't surprise so. anybody. We kind of got past the point of where we just cut things because it gets too graphic. Yeah, it's just fuck like, it. oh, fuck you guys. Fuck all of you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Listen to this baby rape scene. <laughs> See you next week. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources. As well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. 
If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter, where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. Hammers a chisel into the doctor's. Brooklyn! Brooklyn! Here we go.